Welcome to part seven of the Written by Rich Hosick podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started on this week's installment, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps to allow me to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon, using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 20 Nate arrived at his mother's house in the second Uber in as many days. He still wasn't comfortable driving himself, and certainly wasn't going to take Max up on his offer to chauffeur him around. He had been thinking about his mother since the night before, and realized he hadn't seen or spoken with her since he had been discharged from the hospital. He was only marginally afraid that something unfortunate had happened to her. One compromise he had convinced her to accept was a smartwatch, which had the ability to detect if she had fallen, or was experiencing any cardiac irregularities. Twice he had had to replace the device when she reported that she had given them to her friends. The psychics knew the value of the gadget was far more than Eleanor gave it credit for having, so he convinced her that the latest model was tied to her DNA, and if she gave it to anyone else, it wouldn't work. A ridiculous claim, but she either believed it or realized he really wanted her to wear the watch, and this last one had remained in her possession for nearly a year now. He had checked in on the monitoring account linked to the watch, but there were no incidents reported, and the GPS history showed that she hadn't left home for a few days. That was one feature he never told her about, but he also never used it just to check in on her. Nate walked slowly up the path to the front door of the old frame house. He rang the bell. There was a crash, then another sound. Barking? He peered into the window. A black nose, set amid some dirty white fur, bumped against the glass. Nate almost took a tumble backwards. A dog? His mother didn't have a dog. He double-checked the address to make sure he was at the right house, then looked around to make sure he was on the correct street. There was no doubt. This was his mother's house the one he had grown up in, the one where pets were never allowed, despite the begging and pleading of a young boy, an only child, desirous of a best friend. Then he heard his mother's voice. Madge, Madge, get away from there. Move, move. Get down. Get off me. The door finally unlocked and opened. Madge, the standard poodle who is responsible for Eleanor Rainey's frazzled state, squeezed out of the door, took a lap around the front yard, toyed with the idea of chasing a car that passed by, then bounded back toward Nate. Nate instinctively turned his left side toward the oncoming dog, protecting his damaged arm. Madge reared up and put her paws on him with a weight he wasn't expecting. Fortunately, she merely pushed him into the house rather than knocking him over. The impact on his injury was painful, but he was more upset that he had allowed himself to be taken by surprise. It was just so unexpected. A dog was the last thing he thought he would find at his mother's house. Nate steadied himself, then shouted a single, stern command. Off. Madge took her paws off of Nate, then set them on the ground and looked up at him. He took a step toward her and said commandingly, Sit. Madge obeyed. Oh my, how did you do that? Eleanor asked. We have dogs on the police force, Mom. Nate told her, leaving out the part where he had briefly dated one of the canine handlers. The better question is, where did she come from? he asked. Well, you remember Beverly Simmons? She broke her hip, and they don't take pets at the facility they moved her into. And, 
Well, she didn't want Madge going to a shelter, so how could I say no? Why didn't you call me? You can't take care of a dog. I thought I could. Beverly said she was such a good girl, but she just doesn't listen to me. Madge whimpered, then started to get up and move toward Nate. Nate shushed her and held up his hand. Madge stopped her whining, sat back down, and lowered her head. Maybe you could take her, Eleanor suggested. Nate looked at his mother with a shocked expression. Oh, now I can have a dog? After asking you and Dad for twelve years? Yes, Eleanor said. I give you permission to have a dog, and here she is. Nate started to say something, but realized that any other course of action would be even more effort on his part. And he did always want a dog. Since he was stuck at home for a while, he could probably train her. Eleanor saw Nate hesitate and smiled knowingly. I have some food and her toys on the back porch. Nate grunted. Until we can come up with a permanent situation, I guess I can take care of Madge temporarily. Madge got excited hearing the words toys and Madge so close together. Nate glared at her and she quieted down. I can tell you right now, if you don't behave, I'll lock you in the basement. Oh, you'll do no such thing. She's a very good dog, Eleanor stated firmly. Then she looked down at the confused but still obedient poodle. Except for the food stealing. Poor thing must be starving. Nate shook his head, instantly regretting his decision. Why are you here? Eleanor asked, suddenly concerned. Is everything okay? I'm fine. Still a few months away from active duty, and... Oh, you're not going to go back, are you? You nearly died. I couldn't take it. Both you and your father gone? I'd give up and starve myself if I wasn't afraid I'd go straight to hell and never see my boys again. Nate refrained from expressing his thoughts on the subject of an afterlife. Let's go inside. I want to talk to you about something. Eleanor held open the door. Madge looked at it, then up at Nate. Nate gave her an approving nod, and the dog ran inside, directly toward the kitchen. I hope there isn't anything on the counter, Nate warned as he entered the house and closed the door behind him. They walked into the living room and Nate took a seat on the couch, while Eleanor perched herself on the paisley upholstered armchair next to it. Nate avoided looking at the empty recliner across from his mother, the chair his father had spent much of his life in. What is it, dear? Eleanor asked. Well, I met someone. Oh, is she nice? Is it that pretty nurse from the hospital? Oh, Nate, I'm so happy for you. No, I'm not dating anyone. She's an anthropology professor at the State University, and she also investigates things. Like what? Eleanor asked, suspicious. Like fake psychics. Oh, pshaw, Eleanor said, posturing herself to face her body away from Nate. Mom, it's not... She actually believes in all that stuff, but she investigates to find out whether they're real. Of course they're real, Eleanor insisted. I talk to your father every week, just like I talked to him for 30 years. I would know if I was actually speaking with him or not. People can be very clever, Nate suggested. Sometimes they figure out things that make it seem like, I don't want to argue about all that. I want to know why you don't ask her out. She's a college professor. You always like the smart ones. What if we all go out sometime? Nate found himself asking, as much surprised as Eleanor was. All of us? Sure, as long as you listen to what she has to say. Eleanor considered. It was a small price to pay to see her son out with a nice girl, and it would give her a chance to talk him up to her. Any mother would kill to tag along on a date with their son. All right, I'll listen. But we go somewhere nice, where you have to dress up. Wear that blue suit you have, and the pink and silver tie. Sure, Mom. We'll go someplace nice. Good. Are you staying for dinner? I have fresh meatloaf. There was a crash from the kitchen. How about I take you out? 
Chapter 21 Jennifer breezed into her office. Good news, she announced, but then realized there was no one there to hear it. She looked around. No Dave, no Emily, no Bits. She walked around the desk and sat down. She turned on the computer and logged into her Twitter feed to continue sorting through the growing list of responses to her appearance. It looked like the Mohogan interview was paying off. There were a few more direct messages from people reaching out to her with claims of ghosts, one woman insisting she was possessed by the spirit of a dead cable car driver, and another who asserted she had precognitive visions and needed to speak with Jennifer as soon as possible. She forwarded each to Dave to look into, then noticed a folder on the corner of her desk. Jennifer picked up the bulky packet and read the label across the top. It was written in Dave's precise printing, Oakley Arms Research. She tried to remember why he had been compiling information on something called Oakley Arms, then remembered one of the possible cases he had flagged. She opened the folder and started flipping through the pages. Her staff's work, as always, was methodical and thorough. The material was organized chronologically, likely Emily's contribution, starting with stories about the laying of the building's cornerstone up through the opening which attracted the attention of the mayor and a couple of local celebrities. The building's elevators were state-of-the-art for the time, and the spacious apartments and pleasant views attracted an upscale clientele as it was one of the first buildings of its size to go up after the Great Quake. There were a couple of articles through the early part of the 20th century about the building's owners falling on hard times during the Depression, and the property changed hands a few times during and between the World Wars, when it became a popular residence for military personnel. During the 50s, it saw a renovation that was sparked by a series of electrical fires in the building. Each one was relatively contained, but the original wiring had never been replaced, and hungry rodents had chewed through much of the cloth-clad wiring, causing blazes that fortunately hadn't killed anyone. The fires did, however, catch the attention of city inspectors who, after decades of either malfeasance or indifference, had no choice but to insist that it be replaced and sprinklers installed. The next time the Oakley Arms made the news was in the 60s. A headline screamed, X-Men falls to death off Oakley Arms. Jennifer sat down to read this saga in detail. A violent death, actually two of them. The X-Men's last victim, and himself, made the old building a strong candidate for a haunting. She read the additional material Dave had included about the X-Men's killing spree that left young women across the city racked with fear. For over a year, the serial killer had struck seemingly at random throughout the city, with the only commonality among his victims being that they were all attractive young women living on their own. Jennifer reread the article detailing the X-Man's demise. The reporter captured the harrowing moments when the murderer was trapped in the building, driven to the roof, and found dead from a fall onto a neighboring building. And there it was. She couldn't believe it hadn't stood out to her the first time she read it. One of the policemen who found the body was named William Rainey. Same spelling on the last name as Nate. It was common for police work to be a generational vocation, and she wondered if there was a connection between Officer William Rainey and Detective Nate Rainey. The elevator opened at the far end of the basement offices. Jennifer looked up from the pages and saw Dave approaching, a sandwich in one hand that he was hungrily eating. Dr. Day, he said with a mouthful of tuna salad and a bit of surprise. Hi, Dave. She held up the folder. Great work. Dave finished chewing and swallowing before speaking again. Thanks. Looks like it checks a lot of boxes. It does. Old building, lots of history, violent deaths, a police officer named Rainey. I was hoping you'd spot that, he said, smiling. Can you find out if he's any relationship to Nate Rainey? Dave dropped his backpack and fished out a printed page. It showed a graduation ceremony at the police academy, including a young officer, Nathaniel Rainey, attended by his great-uncle, Detective William Rainey, retired. 
Jennifer's smile matched Dave's. Chapter 22 Madge jumped up on Nate's bed and started licking his face. It was late morning, but Nate was still exhausted from a restless night, and it took him a moment to return to consciousness and realize what was happening. Madge, he commanded sternly, off. Madge pulled back and stared at Nate quizzically. Nate wondered if this dog had received any training at all. Then he remembered that he had left Madge locked in a large wire kennel he had purchased and paid to have delivered and set up the previous night. Off, he repeated more sharply. Madge backed up half a step, looked down at the carpeted bedroom floor, then back at Nate. Nate nodded his head toward the floor. Madge reluctantly jumped down, and then jumped right back up again. Nate used his good arm to prop himself up to a sitting position, and shifted his leg under the covers to nudge Madge to the edge of the bed. The dog, trying to maintain her position on the increasingly shrinking sliver of bed between the edge and Nate's leg, until she unceremoniously toppled over and crashed to the floor. She scrambled to her feet and peered up at Nate with sad eyes. How did you get out of your crate? he asked rhetorically. Madge looked at him, then turned and trotted away, walked to the other side of the bed, where she hopped up and then curled up on the corner out of Nate's reach. Nate decided to put off any further attempted discipline on his new house guest until after breakfast. He checked his watch and was surprised to see it was already a quarter past nine. The doctor had warned him that the side effects of his medications could include fatigue, but at the same time, he had trouble sleeping. Despite the pain pills, there was always a persistent dull ache in his shoulder, and the headaches that would come in waves. That, coupled with the vivid dreams, left very little time during the night for actual sleep. He found himself turning on a late-night radio talk show and letting it distract him until he couldn't stay awake any longer. Now he could add worrying about Madge. Now he could add worrying about what Madge was up to while he was asleep to the list. That notion jolted him to full wakefulness. He made his way downstairs and to the kitchen, where he had left Madge securely locked away, or so he had thought. He stopped and took in a deep breath as he surveyed the mess. The garbage was strewn around, and everything that could be shredded was torn into tiny, wet, smelly pieces. Fortunately, he hadn't left any food out, and she hadn't managed to get into his refrigerator, though there were some scratch marks on the large cabinet that served as his pantry. He inspected the steel wire crate he had left Madge in the previous night. It had a latch that required squeezing two handles together to release the door. The door was shut. There didn't appear to be any way she could squeeze her snout between the steel wire or the gap between the door and the crate. And even if she had somehow undone the latch, how could she have managed to lock it back up again? Nate began replaying the events of the night before, wondering if he had merely dreamed locking up Madge. Regardless, it was a puzzle that could be put off until later. He opened the locked door of the crate. Madge, breakfast, he called out, gently, hoping to lure her with the promise of food. A few seconds later, he heard a thump and the pad of her feet on the carpet, then the click of her nails on the wood floor of the hallway. She poked her head into the kitchen. Nate glared at her and she bowed her head, sheepishly, as if trying to explain it was all out of her control. He stood next to the open kennel, and Madge, head still bowed, trudged slowly to her incarceration, as if accepting her sentence. Just until I get things cleaned up, Nate promised her. Maybe you need to go for a walk. At the word walk, Madge's ears perked up, and she excitedly turned around in the cage. Soon, Nate promised, then started a pot of coffee while he set about trying to sweep and mop up the mess on his kitchen floor with one good arm. It took a while, but when he was done, he made himself a heavily creamed cup of coffee and carried it out to the living room. Madge, he shouted, once he saw that every single throw pillow had been shredded and relieved of their stuffing, and all the cushions yanked from the chairs and sofa. He heard an apologetic whimper from the corner of the kitchen. 
Nate set the coffee down, found the cushion for his chair, and set it in place. He lowered himself into it, forcing his mind to ignore the storm of stuffing blanketing his living room, and took a satisfying sip from his coffee. The doorbell rang. Nate waited for Max's familiar voice to shout through the door, but it obviously wasn't his partner. Max didn't have the patience to wait for anyone to answer the door. He'd be shouting for Nate to open it and trying the knob by now. Who else could it be? He wasn't expecting anyone. It wouldn't be his mother. Perhaps a delivery? Nate set the coffee down, then lifted himself from the chair and stepped around the cushions. He was partially aware that he was barefoot and only wearing a t-shirt and some loose pajama pants and had his arm in a sling. He opened the door. Good morning, Detective Rainey, Jennifer Day said with a smile. Without waiting for Nate to ask, she squeezed by him into the house, then froze when she saw the state of the place. I'm not sure I want to know, she said, looking to Nate, who was still in a state of shock. What are you doing here? Nate asked. And how do you know where I live? Jennifer ignored his questions, fished a thick file folder out of her bag, and handed it to him. I have a case for us. Us? I never said I would. Actually, you did. We have a bet. I find a case that convinces you that the paranormal is real. Then you talk to me about your near-death experience. I never had a, and this is the case, she said, flapping the folder in front of his face. She sniffed at the air. Do I smell coffee? Nate felt completely off guard. Part of him was embarrassed to let someone into his house with the state Madge had left it in, while another part was embarrassed to have Jennifer see him essentially undressed with an unknown degree of bedhead. But oddly, he found himself glad to see her. Despite the disaster he had woken up to, her free-spirited personality assured him somehow that it was all good. Lots of sugar, no cream. I don't know how people can drink coffee with cream in it, she said as she placed the file on the coffee table next to Nate's cup, filled with an almost white liquid. She smiled an awkward apology. Then she caught something out of the corner of her eye. Who's this? she asked. Nate turned and saw Madge standing in the kitchen door. The dog trotted around the minefield of cushions and deflated pillows and sniffed at Jennifer's outstretched hand. She then stepped forward and slipped her head under the hand and allowed Jennifer to scratch her behind the ears. I, um, Nate stammered, still in the shock at Jennifer's unexpected entrance and Madge's repeat performance of her escape artist act. Need to get dressed? Jennifer suggested. I thought you might be up by now. I know it's a Saturday, but I didn't take you for one to sleep in. A lot on my mind lately. Plus the meds are really messing with me, Nate explained, nodding toward the sling. No worries, Jennifer said, scratching the dog behind its ear with one hand, while reading the tag attached to its collar with the other. Madge will keep me company. Go make yourself pretty, she teased. Nate grimaced at the comment, but decided the opportunity to get out of this room and into some clothing that made him feel comfortable instead of powerless was the best move for the moment. He grabbed his coffee cup. The coffee's in the kitchen. Cups are next to the sink. Sugar's on the counter. At least he wasn't going to be corralled into waiting on her as well. Thanks, Jennifer said, while giving Madge a two-handed neck scruff that made the dog squeeze her eyes shut in delight. Nate left the room. Once he was gone, Jennifer looked down at the poodle. Did you make this mess? Was this you? Madge moaned. It's okay. Let's clean it up for your daddy. Madge looked around as if not quite understanding what Jennifer wanted her to do. By us, I mean me. You just stay out of trouble for a little while. Can you do that? Madge answered by jumping up on the chair recently vacated by Nate, as it was the only one with a cushion. Jennifer smiled and started gathering up the stuffing. After a look in the mirror, Nate decided he needed to jump into the shower before any further dealings with Dr. Day. He had mastered putting on and taking off both t-shirts and dress shirts around his injured shoulder with minimal pain. The steamy warmth from the shower seemed to provide a level of relief from the constant discomfort that his medication couldn't quite reach. 
He had intended to do just a cursory rinse rather than a full shower. But the momentary bliss supplied by the stream of hot water cascading over her shoulder was too good to rush. Once he was clean and carefully toweled dry, Nate slipped into some chinos and a casual polo shirt. He ran his electric razor over the previous night's double, dreading the possibility of a compliment from Jennifer, while at the same time not wanting her to think he was a slob who lived in a house that looked like a war zone. He slipped on some socks and loafers, checked to make sure his hair looked presentable, and walked down the stairs and through the hall to the living room. When he got there, he was somewhat surprised to find it was restored to a respectable state of order. The cushions were all back in place. The empty pillowcases were stacked on one of the chairs, and all the stuffing had been cleaned up and removed. Jennifer and Madge sat on the sofa. The dog rested its head in Jennifer's lap while she scratched behind its ears with one hand and navigated something on her phone with the other. Thanks, you didn't need to do this, Nate said. Not at all. Besides, I figured if I did something nice for you, I could guilt you into listening to my proposal and convince you to investigate this case with me. Nate lowered himself gingerly into his chair and glanced at the folder before him on the coffee table. I think you'll find this one interesting. Why is that? Nate asked, unconvinced. Because it may involve a serial killer from the 60s who was caught by a young police officer named William Rainey. Nate shot her a look. Uncle Bill? he asked. Oh, is he related? Jennifer asked innocently. Nate smirked at her heavy-handed attempt to play dumb. He picked up the folder, laid it in his lap, and opened it up. Jennifer had placed a newspaper article detailing Nate's uncle's role in ending the X-Man's reign of terror at the top of the stack. She sipped at her cup of coffee while she watched him read it. If he was curious, he didn't let on. One by one, he read carefully through the pages of the articles, then the incident report Dave had compiled based on Diane Collins' email and subsequent phone interviews. Once he got to the other historical information about the Oakley Arms, Nate became less careful of his inspection of the documents, reading only the first few paragraphs to see if it was of any relevance and then skimming the rest. Jennifer sat and watched Nate read, while ruffling Madge's curly hair absently, much to the dog's delight. After nearly an hour, Nate closed the folder and set it down. She has a stalker, Nate declared confidently. Tell her to call the police. What are the police going to do about the apparitions in her bathroom? The unexplained cold spots in her apartment? The sounds and disturbances? Nothing. It's a job for the building superintendent. There's nothing supernatural about an old building having drafts, or creaking and groaning. As for the ghost she saw, come on, she admitted it was in a steamy bathroom. Okay, so it's an easy bet then. It is. But you have to prove everything you just said to win, Jennifer insisted. And I get a chance to prove to you that there's something paranormal at work here. It has all the earmarks of an apparition. And you think the ghost is the lost soul of this axe man that my great-uncle chased off the roof of her building sixty-some years ago? Could be, Jennifer said. Why is that so impossible? Because there are no such things as ghosts. Jennifer smiled. What's so funny? Nate asked. We'll see, she answered confidently. You think just because there's a connection to my Uncle Bill that I'm going to jump at the chance to look into it? Nate accused. Jennifer shrugged innocently. Nate had to admit, he was sincerely curious about looking into something having to do with a case his great-uncle had worked on. And there was that promise of taking his mother to dinner with Dr. Day he had made. Tell you what, I'll look into this with you if you do me a favor. What did you have in mind? Dinner. I thought that was after I lost the bet. No, I want you to have dinner with my mother and me. I told you, she's been taken advantage of by a lot of psychics in town. Unfortunately, there are a lot of con artists who thrive on taking advantage of the vulnerable, Jennifer admitted. So explain that to her. Let her know that she can't trust every storefront palm reader who tells her that my dad wants her to buy them a new iPhone. Jennifer nodded. I can do that. 
You do understand that even though I acknowledge there are frauds out there tricking people, I also believe it is possible to communicate with the dead, and I've done it myself. If you could just convince her to be more careful, and I can't believe I'm saying this, maybe refer her to someone you trust not to bleed her dry. Jennifer nodded, a serious look on her face. No problem. I get it. You care about her. And maybe you think you can trust me. Nate considered. Well, you aren't a typical grifter. Most of them aren't tenured professors at state universities. Have you seen the job market for anthropology majors these days? Nate laughed. Okay, challenge accepted. When do you want to visit Miss Collins? She's expecting us right about now. I didn't know you would spend an hour reading the file. Us? Now? You were that confident, I'd agree. Jennifer rose to her feet, causing Madge to sit up. As you'll find out soon enough, never bet against me. Nate directed his gaze at Madge. I think you, my friend, are going into the yard. I can't trust you in the house. Madge looked up at Jennifer. Don't look at me. I'm on his side on this one. You made a big mess. The dog stepped down off the sofa and walked through the living room, then into the kitchen, all the way to the back door. Nate and Jennifer exchanged curious looks. Smart dog, Jennifer commented. After we debunk your noisy pipes case, I need you to figure out how she's been getting out of her kennel. Oh, you keep her locked up? Nate rolled his eyes, reminding her that she spent quite a bit more than a few minutes cleaning up after that smart dog. Right, Jennifer acknowledged. I see your point. Nate rose and walked to the back door and let Madge out, then locked the door behind him. All right, he called out to Jennifer. Let's not keep Miss Collins waiting. Thank you for listening to Part 7 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation, on the Written by Rich Hosick podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please leave a review on Amazon or Audible, and stay tuned for more chapters in this thrilling paranormal mystery in the coming weeks. Also, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or download these episodes on Audible. Give me a like or five stars and a quick review. And most importantly, share Near Death and my weekly bedtime stories for insomniacs with your friends, or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Richosik and give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.